Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, second year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, everyone. Third year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Joshua Poole. Hi, Joshua. How's it going, Dr. Parks? Third year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Saloni. Hi, Hi Saloni. And second year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Got a full house uh, tonight. Great. Uh, long time no see, Josh. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Well, on today's show, you joined us for a good show. We're going to talk about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, or the DSM. DSM-5, that's the version that's out right now. We all use that as clinicians to uh, diagnose folks, identify um, clinical syndromes, uh, guide our treatment, perhaps. And we're very honored to have as our guest, Dr. Carl Feinstein. For the past five years, Dr. Feinstein has been faculty attending at su and supervisor at UCR in the First Five program and health psychotherapy clinic. He's also an emeritus professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Stanford University Medical Center. And he's co-founder and the chief medical officer for a startup called TRAIT, which is an AI-powered data analytics and clinical decision platform designed to improve outcomes for patients and neuropsychiatric, with neuropsychiatric conditions. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Feinstein. Glad to be here. Well, I think it'd be, it'd be good to kind of put the DSM in context, so maybe a little bit of history, so folks that are listening and maybe not too familiar with the DSM might get um, some understanding about where this came from and why we're using it and that kind of thing. Tosh, why don't yeah. you uh, say a little bit about that? Yeah, so I have some on this. So um, what I found was from the APA website. So uh, the APA says that 1952 was the year the first edition of the DSM was published, and it was published by the APA Committee on Nomenclature and Statistics. Um, it was based off of actually the ICD-6, um, and the DSM was unique in that it was the first manual to focus on you know using it clinically the dsm-3 uh was a was a really big change from the previous dsms in that it introduced a lot of new things such as um uh multiple axes of diagnosis um and it also tried to report or classify mental disorders from more of a neutral standpoint, at least it attempted to. And there was also specific diagnostic criteria, criteria that were spelled out in the DSM-3. And that was unique to the DSM-3. We're now on DSM-5, everyone. Right. So to get things started, our, thank you, Tosh, by the way, um, our kind of format for how we're planning to have this discussion with Dr. Feinstein is we're just going to start with kind of as broad strokes, some of the weaknesses, and then talk about some of the strengths, which there are many of both. Um, and, and one thing I like about the DSM, Dr. Feinstein actually assigned us to read the first uh, two chapters or, or the essentially the introduction to the DSM, which is something that I probably would have never done in my life if he hadn't assigned it. And it turns out they're, they're pretty introspective about a lot of this stuff and they've thought a lot about it. 
I think one of the weaknesses I'd like to just start us on and see where our journey goes from there is we talked about there's a lot of vested interests here. There's a lot of shareholders and some of them are maybe more pleasant than others to acknowledge. What do we have to say? What Dr. Feinstein, what, it, what are your thoughts on that? And is it maybe a necessary thing in this society to always have some vested interests in such a huge system that's, you know, largely corporate? Well, there, there are different stakeholder groups. I think society, I know we're not supposed to start off talking about strength, but society wants to find some kind of a way of systematizing mental disorders so they can be treated. Um, so um, then a system gets started for doing that. And here we come to one of the weaknesses. Everybody uses that system. They learn that system. They memorize that system. They built their pharmaceutical pharmaceuticals based on testing conditions, how, how different conditions were treated. Psychiatrists who are famous researchers built their entire research career out of it. And basically, every single practitioner uh, would get very nervous if all of a sudden there were a big change in that system. Yeah. So this it's it's like a uh, you know it's like that ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal, very very big and very hard to steer, you know whatever, <laughs> and it has a lot of momentum, uh, but it is full of flaws. Can I just point out here? I also want to mention. I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but Dr. Feinstein is our expert guest specifically because he was involved in the research that went into um, the DSM-5. Thank you, Tosh. That's true. You know, what you're bringing up, Dr. Feinstein, reminds me, and I have no idea if this is true or not, but there's this thing that would always be told on the wards when I did my surgery rotation. When you ask, why do we come in at four in the morning? And apparently, this is like maybe an old wives tale, right? But the story was, we come in at four in the morning, because before there was electricity, you would have to prepare everything. So when the light was most intense in the day, the operating room would be well lit. And then ever since then, we've just been doing it that same way, right? And I have no idea if that's true. But I think it's because <laughs> surgeons are sadists. Yeah, you know, I, we, we don't want to. <laughs> yeah. I'll um, go on record. I <laughs> Hold me to that. <laughs> I'll sign. <laughs> anyway, in, in the, in the, uh, I mean, you know, most things Joshua says are, are correct. <laughs> I feel like I'll just reference it by saying Joshua said it, but <laughs> there you go. Anywho, in the chapter that, um, Dr. Feinstein mentioned that, or that I mentioned that, that Dr. Feinstein, uh, had us read, they talk about how, you know, some of the things that are the way they are, are simply the way they are because they have been the way they are. And, we have to keep our system working. We can't just bring everything crashing down every time we have a new idea, which is fair. Yes, I think that's very, very important. Uh, I think the DS, I think the DSM introduction. Um, well, I'll, I'll get back to that point. The DSM introduction, why nobody's read it in a second, because I think that's important. Actually, um, uh, they also point out uh, an awareness. That a lot of what they are what what they are maintaining as a system that has stability and has some usefulness uh, has a lot of problems attached to it. Uh, the diagnoses are are restrictive categories of symptoms. 
that people believe are diseases, but they're actually, most, most of them are not diseases. They are syndromes, they're collections of symptoms that clinicians have um, tried to understand uh, that explain uh, different types of patients who come in for care. Um, and, but it, the reality is, which, uh, which the writers wrote in the introduction, is that the, these narrow categories really don't exist that way. Many conditions, uh, you might say major depression, for example, but there isn't a major depression. There are major depressions. There's not one autism. There's many autisms. There's many ADHDs. There's many anxiety disorders. So these conditions, so, but, that, and that is because they, they respond differently to treatment and people have come to recognize nuances which can't be formulated precisely enough. In addition, in real life, most people uh, who come in to see a, a psychiatrist or a mental health uh, practitioner didn't read the DSM before they came in. And the symptoms they have, the ones they care about, don't, are not isomorphic. They don't line up exactly with the DSM. They have often symptoms for many different disorders. So comor we call, that's called comorbidity sometimes. And the fact is, is that a majority of psychiatric diagnoses, if you take a look at the, the patient's meet criteria for several different diagnoses. So <clears throat> um, that's, th those are some pretty big problems. Uh, and uh, the DSM tried to make progress on that by lumping them together in a way so that, in so that even though the pre precise diagnoses might not be right, the general grouping of diagnoses is probably valid. Anyhow, that's the point they make. I wanted to piggyback off of what you're saying, Dr. Feinstein, um, in that the trajectory from DSM-3, which I mentioned was very specific in regarding to listing explicit criteria to make a diagnosis, the trajectory from DSM-3 to DSM-5 has been moving towards a more broader spectrum, uh, looking at, you know, giving, giving um, practitioners more liberty to include more, make it more inclusive, right? And I also want to point out the uh, what I think is really important and illustrative of uh, the, the broad spectrum of the way that we use the DSM is that there are institutions across the U.S. that teach their trainees or residents and fellows um, to use it very strictly, and there are other institutions that teach their trainees uh, not to use it very strictly. For instance, Johns Hopkins, um, really, I think you mentioned Dr. Feinstein. I think you used the, uh, well, I don't know. You you were there. You taught there. You worked there. <laughs> yeah, well, <clears throat> that's true. I think, I, I, I think it gets to the issue about the, making specific diagnoses. Um, if the diagnoses... Um, in general, people come to see a therapist or a psychiatrist because they have problems and they want their problems helped. It's subjective distress or behavior that's maladaptive in some kind of a way. They don't come because they have this diagnosis. And as I mentioned before, they often have many diagnoses. But there are also people who don't really need, fit neatly into having any of those specific diagnoses, 
also have very significant problems that merit treatment. Uh, so I'm, I'm <clears throat> I think the reason why people teach specific diagnoses is because uh, one of the one of the inertial factors which keeps this machine going in one direction is that the evidence base, all the research, all the clinical trials are based on using very strict diagnostic criteria and excluding patients who, who have other diagnoses besides the one that they're targeting for treatment. So um, <clears throat> that becomes an enormous uh, vested interest, but it also it's also the evidence base. So, you know, type two of this or that might be, there might be a publication, several publications that show that such and such treatment is effective for that. Um, uh, and uh, people need something to base their practice on. They need an evidence base. So those people who are very, who go, who treat the diagnosis, they tend to rely very heavily on the clinical trials um, and and uh, try to treat the diagnosis as though they are they are valid biologically defined diseases as much as they possibly can, uh, but they're not. Well, uh, uh, Dr. Feist, I was just saying one one of the the, it, the issues that DSM five was trying to solve was this the, the idea that we were just talking about how the cate categories that were unnatural basically that but they were imposed and they wanted to include some more dimensionality to it. Why do you feel that that effort uh, wasn't very successful for the DSM-5? Was it the lack of research? And was the lack of research almost caused in a way by the DSM, the previous versions? Well, the DSM-5 skews all research. If you go to an NIMH review committee, uh, you, have to, you have to pay very careful attention to how you define the disorder you're treating. And people build up their whole research careers um, out of treating a disorder. And then if you change the disorder, what happens to all their research? You know, all of a sudden they're caught in the five-year study with different diagnoses from year three on. Uh, so there's a, lot, there's a lot of issues that way. I'm not, but the issue of dimensionality, um, <clears throat> the question is, what are the dimensions? Um, and uh, NIMH, about... It seems to me about 10 or 15 years ago, began proposing that the dimensions that we should be studying in psychiatric disorder are not these groupings of diagnostic categories, but they are other broader, they, they align more with what the neurocircuitry of the brain is. So there are disorders of motivation and there are disorders of distress, negative emotion. And there are disorders of cognition, uh, and there are disorders of impulse control, and uh, and uh, they uh, and they have had some traction in research because now researchers have to take into account more of the biology of the dis of the, uh, the what is known about the biology of, of the disorder, and not strictly the nomenclature of the disorder than they used to. So we're bringing kind of attention to the fact that in addition to these dimensions that are created to try to make this make more sense. So there's, there's a lot of order they put into it this time. I guess actually some of this order has been there since the beginning, but one of them is they're trying to have like a lifespan chronology to the DSM where um, 
as you go farther into it, things start there. They talk about diseases that start to arrive later in the lifespan. Another one was they're trying to group things by internalizing and externalizing disorders. And so they made their efforts, but I think we're calling to attention to an inborn weakness of a, a document that's trying to um, serve two purposes at the same time, right? Which is, it's a huge challenge. It's trying to be a nosology for research. Otherwise, in, in layman's terms, it's, it's trying to be kind of like a, um, a list of things and what and sub things that researchers can use to have a consistent language between themselves. And then it's also an advocacy tool for us doctors to try to be able to get our patients' care paid for, for us doctors to be able to try to make sense of something, um, a group of symptoms in a way that can bring meaning to its treatment. And so it's trying to do a lot of things at once. One of the things that has been spoken about in terms of trying to be able to give freedom to the provider to get things paid for and to get things treatment is this term diagnostic creep, which is like the idea of a creeping, um, like a creeping mental illness definition where more and more of the population can, can be, not necessarily is, but can be diagnosed as mentally ill. And that kind of goes to what Tosha was talking about with um, some people see this as a guide and only diagnose when they see it as useful and other people, oh, if you meet the criteria, then you get the diagnosis. How do you feel about that sort of diagnostic creep in ADHD and bipolar? And do you feel it's actually a problem or is it not a problem since people don't actually have to make the diagnoses? Uh, I, I, what you're saying uh, reminds me of, a, of an interesting point that people don't pay attention to enough is that it is not enough to meet the symptom criteria to have a diagnosis of a disorder. You have to have subjective distress or adaptive malfunctioning. There has to be, the patient has to be suffering or the patient has to be having behaviors which bring them into very serious problems with their, with their context. Uh, so you can't, the diagnosis without that, people can have a diagnosis and uh, lots of people have diagnoses and they're just walking around and they're not getting treatment because they're really not bothering anybody enough and they're not in distress. But, and, and, there, and there are also people who have a lot of distress but don't really fall into any of these categories and they should get treatment too. Right, uh, right. So, so diagnose, I don't know, and maybe that's not exactly the point you're saying about diagnostic creep. Well, it's, it's a point I care about. Are there any uh, those people that are walking around and they're in immense distress, but they don't have a label? Are there any of those labels that aren't there in this DSM, like sex addiction, Asperger's, um, that you particularly worry about? And also, are, or are you worried about some of the new ones? Like, do, do you find any concern in the, um, in the um, hypoactive female sexual? I, I'm forgetting the actual term. I think it's um, female hypoarousal disorder. Do any oh. of those, have any of those brought pause? Before you answer that question, <laughs> Dr. Feisite, I you're, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking about the DSM with Dr. Carl Feinstein. Go ahead, Dr. Feinstein. I don't think I think I think the way you present it, I have I have a lot of sympathy with the way you're presenting it. We can get there is diagnostic creep, um, 
uh, I don't, I, the way I think is the best way to approach treatment, which is a new kind of approach, a relatively new kind of approach to evidence-based in psychiatry, but not in, let's say, oncology, is to track, is to treat the symptoms that the patients come in with or that the doctors can clearly identify as the patients can see and track them and see if the patient gets better uh, and not treat the diagnosis. Uh, and if you do that and you collect lots of biological information and, and, uh, and psychosocial stressors and genetic information, if you do that, and you see, you and you see which group, which patients respond to which treatment. We will end up with a more valid diagnostic system than just making up a diagnostic system and trying to treat it. One of the big problems that we have in psychiatry, which uh, by having all these diagnoses, is that none of them, or, or, or with only a very small number of exceptions, have any biological lab tests or biological proof that they are really based in the body. And that is despite very many excellent researchers batting their heads against this problem for 50 years now. And they, they do all kinds of the biology and the chemistry is all and neurochemistry and the neuroscience is all very sophisticated, but it doesn't correlate with the diseases, the diseases, the disorders in the DSM. So something's got to get there. And biology has change. And one of the articles that you sent us, Dr. Feinstein, from the New York Times pointed that out really well, saying that all the research and time and money that we're spending towards towards that um, in terms of understanding um, the theories better or uh, hopefully finding us, a, 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 I don't know, some, some big cure that we haven't found yet is taking away from what we need more pragmatically right in the here and now, given the severe lack of services that we can provide to people who are suffering right now. That, yeah, that was an article by Benedict Carey at Tosha, and I agree very strongly um, that um, uh, something needs to be done. I, 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 I am, I am, I am, I'm supportive of basic research. I think the more bio, the the more the more advanced our biology and our neuroscience uh, becomes, the more helpful it will eventually be in in arriving at treatments. But the problem we have is that we are not is that we are not we are not basing any of our diagnostic criteria on response to treatment. So. Uh, and, and only a certain subset of behavioral research, which doesn't care so much about diagnoses, even tries to do that. Really, um, it's um, it's it, uh, it's you know, in my so in the software company that you mentioned that I'm involved with, it's all about treatment tracking. Uh, it's all about treatment tracking and using. Uh, artificial intelligence and machine language to correlate with risk factors and biological variables to see, um, to, to, to try to tease out what the diagnoses might really be. For example, we have ADHD. We have a child who comes with an ADHD. Uh, experienced clinicians know that a child uh, with ADHD who has, whose both parents had ADHD might, is somewhat different from a child who was born uh, prematurely at age 28 weeks 
and has a lot of them, um, and had and spent uh, two months in the neonatal intensive care unit. That is not the same child. Um, and also the children who have diet, malnutrition, extreme psychosocial distress, they might have a ten they, they might meet the criteria for ADHD, uh, but they don't. Uh, but they don't have. Uh, we we and so we're treating everything as though it's ADHD with the same treatments, but we could find if we took a look at who responded to which treatment, we might come up with a better diagnostic, a better diagnostic system. Dr. Feinstein, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, the show about uh, House MD or Dr. House, where it's, you know, basically a show where he is trying to arrive at a diagnosis, doesn't really know. And so he tries out different treatments to see how the patient responds to then inform the diagnosis. And I think we do that a lot in psychiatry. And, um, you know, it's, it's like you said, it's, you know, regardless of who meets the symptom criteria in the DSM, we are dealing with a very specific selection bias of patients that are coming in to see us. It takes so much for a patient to come in to see the psychiatrist. It takes a, like a significant d degree of distress, I think, for someone to go say that they need to see a doctor for their mental condition or whatever they're dealing with. So I think it's, you know, that's why what you said, it's are the patient is coming to us with a problem and they don't read the book beforehand, most of them. They tell us what the problem is and if we can help them with that problem through medication treatment or therapy, psychotherapy treatment, why not? Especially if they respond to it. That gets back to something that I think Tosha asked before. It's a very good point. If you, there are some programs that teach you to make the very specific diagnostic one diagnosis, that's the diagnosis that the patient has, and you treat them, and, and you may not even spend much time talking to the patient about what their problem is, what's bothering them. You will do checklists, you will do neuropsychological testing, with all kinds of things, and then you will make the diagnosis, and you will treat by the book. You will, you're treating the diagnosis and not the patient. Um, I think that's the problem with those who are too, who, who are too um, addicted to specific diagnoses that are going to change in a few years anyhow. Would you would you consider that a sort of intellectual laziness, Dr. Feinstein? <laughs> I'm just curious. No, I I don't want to call. call <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say that I do want to say thank you for pointing out that I made you all read the the introduction to the DSM. <laughs> I think I think that because I think we all should read it. Uh, instead, we just read the little manual and we just memorize all the symptoms for all the disorders, and we don't even know that there's complexity. We haven't we haven't we haven't explored that. I, I, I well, as a true teacher, oh. Doctor Feinstein, you're the first guest that's given us homework. <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know it's a funny thing. Um, uh, somebody. Uh, I, I will write an article about something, and in the course of writing it, it changes the way I think about things. I think uh, that's one of the wonderful virtues of actually writing articles, because um, if you have a, uh, if you have a certain amount of intellectual honesty, you know that what you're saying isn't really true. <laughs> right. And if you're me, it's like really hard to keep saying it if it isn't really true. <laughs> so you have to try to find out what you really think. The writing is a very, is a, I recommend, I recommend I think, that you 
you bring up a really good point that I think is at sort of the core of what the discussion of the DSM is, which is it is an extremely bold uh, Herculean effort to try and put what is essentially the disorders of consciousness into something somewhat manageable. And I, I think it's no accident that psychiatry is fraught. And I think it's no accident that um, we're the only field in medicine that has an anti-group. And it's because it evolves as, as our sort of language and our ability to talk about what is causing people distress grows. And in that way, I think there's a great positive from the DSM and that it's a bold effort to continually challenge itself to say, let's see if we're looking at this right. And, and it's a cultural document, right? It's a living cultural document. And so our criticism, it's so easy to bash the DSM because the DSM is a product of our culture. And as our culture, the DSM has the, the burden of trying to kind of meet our cultural values um, and meet science kind of in the middle there. I mean, we, these things are disorders because our culture, they don't work in our culture. And there's, there, there's some actually sort of documentation in the DSM about cultural culture bound syndromes that are, you know, maybe not a problem in our culture, but a problem in other cultures, or maybe defined causally differently in other cultures. And that bring, we may have to do a whole nother episode on the strengths of the DSM because there are so many. And there's, I think part of that is that Joshua said it really nicely, the, the Herculean effort that goes into this with committees and focus groups. And sorry, you were going to jump in, Dr. Feinstein. I just want to say very briefly, I totally support your point about the, the, uh, the, multi, the need to be more culty, multicultural. Other cultures experience some of the what we might call the same disorders in very different ways. We're not even sure they're the same disorders. And yeah, that's all the time so we have. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tosha. I was just going to say talking about the DSM use in, uh, internationally is, is another episode, too. And that's all the time we have on this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we discussed the DSM with our special guest, Dr. Carl Feinstein. Thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Dosha Yamaguchi, Joshua Poole, Saloni Singh, Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, suggestions on the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. And if you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Ismail Gonzalez. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Let's get psyched.